Dan, welcome to the podcast. We're here. We made it. (laughs) Angela, so good to hear and see you. Uh, it's, it's been a long time coming and uh, really excited to talk to you, not just about your your upcoming book, but also a little bit around the, the origin, who you are, what you do, the impact you're looking to make on the world. So tell us, who are you? What do you do? And what's the impact you're looking to make on the world? So it's therapy, Angela. That's what this is. <laughs> We're doing some couch therapy. Uh, yes. My name's Dan Pontifrac. My last name in Latin means broken bridge. And if I'm being cheeky, I'm trying to be the opposite of my last name, Angela. I'm trying to build bridges. So uh, Pontibild as opposed to Pontifrac, I guess, right? Love that. <laughs> I, I want to see as many people bloom as possible. And I know that is a bit self-grandizing because of the title of the book, but I've always wanted since i was a kid you know um i've always wanted to see people happy like gleeful joy uh i don't want to use the word engage anymore i don't i don't like employee engagement we can talk talk a bit about that but as a as a guy as an individual as a human being whom was kind of always captain of the sports teams president of the student councils uh leader of this i've always been acutely aware of my purpose Mm. but also how um disenfranchised people are in various ways and i'm just honestly i just find that i'm here to help which is Mm. part of my purpose statement we're not here to see through each other we're here to see each other through Mm. so that's what I've been doing, whether it's as a direct leader in, you know, big companies like SAP and TELUS and Business Objects in academia where I started. And now as a solopreneur company of one guy, uh, that's kind of what my my purpose in life has been. Yeah. Yeah. And all of this, I feel like because I'm also working on my book. So I feel like when you write a book, it's kind of a manifestation <laughs> all of those things in one, right? So tell us a little bit about the, the origin of the book, Work-Life Bloom, why you decided to write it. Well, first of all, it keeps me married. So I married up, but when I'm in Denise's hair way too often, she's like, don't you need to write a book right now? Like, So it's my fifth. So, why don't you and, do something else? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, Can you just like stop asking me questions about the teenagers or life or <laughs> building a house or whatever? So kidding aside, <laughs> slightly and partially, I, I always have a bee in my bonnet about something. <laughs> and that something is about usually to do with organizations, leaders, people, culture of some sort. And when we were going into the pandemic, I was just about finished a fourth book about my kind of leadership principles. And I thought, oh, I should wait till this whole pandemic thing is over. And then uh, I was like, oh, no, I'm going to publish this because it was scheduled to be published in the pandemic, October of 2020. I was like, I could have delayed it. But I said, no, I think this is a good time to have the at least my leadership principles out there for anyone that cared. So to the 9,862 people that bought the book, there's how many people cared about it, right? But that got me, like, as the pandemic wore on and I was noodling a concept at the time called agency, I thought that 
the pandemic had given birth to this new form of agency where leaders saw themselves as beacons of delivering autonomy and empowerment and empathy in their newfound agency to their team members and vice versa team members sort of picked up on that ability to like oh yeah i got this like i can Mm -hmm. work from home i can order from the local restaurant and have it delivered to my trunk and what like people were anyway what what i discovered however by the beginning of 2021 is that it was all a facade. Mm. And then we started talking about things like, you know, RTO, return to office, RTW, which was worse, return to work. You're just like, was I? What were we doing the whole time? Exactly. So then I was like, well, agency has to play a part in some of this somewhere, but it's more than agency. And then the bees started circling the bonnet and there was more than one. And I started noodling these terms like work-life balance, employee engagement, bring your most authentic or best self to work, Mm. as if we don't. And um, it it really got annoying for me in my own head. I was like, well, why do we continue to pitch these concepts? But is there an antidote? Is there something antithetical to it that I might investigate? So that's what happened. It was lead care win. It was the pandemic, it was agency, it was the beginning of 2021 and this epiphany I had, which was it's not just agency, there's more to it. And then compounded with that was these concepts like work-life balance, employee engagement, and bring your best self to work. Mm. Yeah, and I would love to hear your thoughts on on work-life balance because, you know, I and I was lucky enough and, and an honor to get a early copy of the book to prepare for our conversation. And, you know, it struck me that you are suggesting that we move away from work-life balance. So I would love to hear more about that. Yeah, it's, I don't, I don't like the fact that I'm annoyed with the term. What I wish for and for anyone's circumstances is to have balance between work and life, but the, the data, both my own data, uh, my sort of primary research that I did around the globe and everyone else's data suggests highly that there really is no such thing. It's a zero-sum game. It's an idiom gone wrong. And that is, if you kind of think about it, first of all, from the data staring us in the face. So if you look at since 2009, when the fiscal cliff was happening to us, the the increases proportionally of levels of stress, uh, burnout, anxiety, uh, anger, sadness, and loneliness, they average between 10 and 44%, those factors, an increase in a 13-year period, roughly. And you're just like, okay, well, if they've increased between 10 and 44%, how is there such a thing as work-life balance? Shouldn't work-life balance actually be decreasing levels of burnout, stress, anxiety, sadness, anger, uh, loneliness? And it's not. So we lost the plot somewhere in this. And maybe there are certain factors that we as leaders need to be thinking about that can help our people, uh, as I say, the verb I use is to bloom, but really to feel good right? Uh, Flourishing, if you will, even in both work and life. And because work and life 
have a symbiotic yet imbalanced relationship, I argue that leaders have a fiduciary responsibility to create, implement, and sustain those factors so that when people are at work, they feel good and they go home, they feel good because of their work. And then we're building up those attributes in life so that they feel good in their community and their family, et cetera, but they bring them back into work. So that was the argument. And I'm sticking to it, Ange. I'm sticking to it. I I absolutely love it. I mean, one of the things that I talk about with leaders is we, we have a responsibility to send happier, healthier humans back to their families and their communities. This is an ecosystem we're building. Ecosystem. Exactly. Couldn't agree more. Yes. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what your book is about. I mean, you, ta- you use the analogy of, you know, in, in a way, like the way I read it, right, is, is kind of tending to a garden. And it's something that's intentional. It's something that, um, you know, you mentioned that everyone on your team may not be flourishing all, all at the same time. So, you know, you don't say, well, forget about Annie, who's not flourishing right now. Let me focus on the people who are. You are, this is an ecosystem that you're building collectively um, and is a sum of your ability as a leader to ensure that the life and, and the work part, which is kind of more integrated, I think is maybe what you're getting at. Um, so tell me a little bit more about this idea of leadership as a responsibility, because I think this is something that I preach from the the mountaintops all day, every day. And I always get the question, well, like, where does it stop and end, right? Like what is an organization's responsibility to an individual? You know, the thing that I've noticed going into the pandemic and particularly within the pandemic, and if we're post pandemic, Angela, God bless us, but let's call it this post pandemic era is that employees, team members, human beings woke up and said, I want more from my life Mm. than just work. Yet there's this need to still uh, buy peanut butter and jam for the kids' sandwiches to maybe pay rent, go on the old once a year holiday, uh, get shoes. Like you still need to be paid by the organization and just giving foosball tables or boost cart Fridays or free fruit or the tokenism of our wellness strategy is just not enough. So I loved how you use the word integrated. And that's really what a leader has to be thinking about. They need to be thinking about the integrated ecosystem of work and life. Now, when I say life, and I don't mean chicken soup for the soul life, Right. I I don't mean should we have a garage sale on Sunday or, oh, my gosh, interest rates are crazy. What am I going to do about my mortgage? That's not the life stuff I'm talking about. I'm talking about very specific um, factors that can be brought into life, into work, work into life. Mm -hmm. Now, let me ask you a question. So you've read the book and basically my point somewhat in the book, among many, is there's no such thing as employee engagement because that too is also a zero sum game. And the point I'm making is that why is it that Gallup and Aon and Great Place to Work and Blessing White, they they sort of basically have had engagement scores flatline for the better part of 20 plus years. And no one's asking the question, well, maybe we go through cycles as human beings and maybe our work and our life factors change constantly because of an acquisition or we move cities, 
or I lost my mom due to illness and now my network and my relationships aren't feeling great because I was tied into her, whatever the case may be, right? And so some of these things dip. Conversely, sometimes they go up because I got promoted, I got new budget, uh, the trust increased on this organization exponentially because we did something, whatever it might be. Why do you think um, so many leaders are fixated on engagement or employee engagement Yet maybe we should be asking a different question. Like I'm curious because you're a you're a you're a well learned, studied, educated person, and you've been looking at organizations for a long, long time. So I'm going to put on my leadership now program podcast hat yes. on and ask you what what is going on out there, Angela? Yeah, yeah. Well, this may be a little taboo, um, but I believe that we've actually been measuring something called loyalty. Um, and that is actually the construct we've been measuring because I think we've tied this idea of like retention and do you plan to leave in the next two years and are you committed to our, uh, our brand? These are the, usually the questions that we ask within engagement surveys. And I would argue that we're actually measuring loyalty mm. um, and we've tied those two things together because if you're loyal, you're going to perform for me. So I've, I've launched many an engagement survey. I worked before I started my own company. I, that's mainly what I did. And um, that's, that's, that's my, that's my hypothesis. And I think what's happening to your point is there has been this great reevaluation where people are like, I am loyal to myself. An organization is a, a means to an end, an experience for me to, to c- contribute to my mission and my values and at the same time, contributing to the mission, the values of an organization. But the loyalty lies within me and what I need. So that's the shift that I think we're seeing. I, I don't know how to hug you through a screen, but that's exactly what I'm getting at. The loyalty comes in the form of my two dogs. They're loyal to me because mm. we've trained them with various obedience schools and tactics to heal to be to wait to calm to sit to fetch like that's loyalty so we're not training dogs in the organization they're human beings and they have emotions and they have a wide-ranging uh differential level of emotions than a dog of course i love our dogs poppy and cleo shout out to the dogs but in um in the organization, I think what we're going through are cycles. There's weather patterns. There's there's four seasons, right? There's weeds. There's so this back to the, your lovely opening statement about the metaphor of the garden. I too agree that we're cultivating as leaders. We're nurturing. We're trying to fend off locusts and beetles. Mm. And our job is to not grow the garden for the team member, but to bring our tools from the tool shed and say, look. Let me first understand what what's going on in your garden box, mm-hmm. right? And it might be different next year. So I'm going to have another, I'm going to have like many conversations with you about what's going on. Do you feel valued? Do you feel like you belong? Did something change in, you know, your life? Do Have your relationships taken a dive? Uh, is there some sort of well-being factor that has played out at home that is now suddenly gaining momentum? Is there alcoholism? Is there weight? Is there whatever, right? Like there's just, why can't, why can't we be more humane 
in as leaders with some of these conversations about the work and the life factors. That's that's what I get to, which is why employee engagement scores have remained nonsensically static for 25 plus years. And one final point, I loved your uh, remark about loyalty, Angela. Um, and why is that? Because some of these big firms that have been doing what you've been doing before you had your revelation mm-hmm. and epiphany to, to leave the employee engagement surveying stuff, like, like the verb say, stay, strive. Do I say good things about this company in public settings? Mm-hmm. Um, do I want to stay? And do I strive to go above and beyond the call of duty? Say, stay, strive as a measure of engagement is exactly that. It's loyalty. And so if you are, quote, disengaged, does that mean you're disloyal? Or does it just mean that you're going through some things in need of renewal as opposed to being branded disengaged? Absolutely. And I think, you know, the one thing that I will say engagement surveys has given us a tool for is listening. Yeah. And to me, that's the important piece. Um, really, what is our value system? Are our leaders a mirror and manifestation of that behaviorally with our people? Are our people a manifestation of that with each other and our customers and the people we serve and our communities? That is that is culture. Um, I think engagement surveys are great tools for listening. I think we have to shift it to the leadership responsibility conversation around this is what this means to look this is what leadership looks like here mm-hmm. here's what good looks like and what we expect our leaders to do we expect you to be more than technical managers we expect you to care for people if that's part of your value system right and then there's the organizations who say it is a part of their value system but the words aren't matching the actions ah uh, what I call Atna. So Atnas are all talk, no action. They talk exactly. a good game, right, about certain culture or work factors, even, you know, um, employees. They're our single greatest assets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay, then. Let's see this in action other than, you know, superfluous wording. And, I, you know, I think the 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 wake up right the recent wake up that we're seeing you know we've got all these other buzz terms the great resignation um which is just like the og of dis- disengagement right it's like we're we're talking about the same things and what what people are saying is i expect more and i've experienced more and now i have a new baseline of what what i will tolerate and organizations haven't quite caught up to that yet. So I think we're seeing this big, this gap. And I think what happens is organizations react mm. and they look over to the other side of the pond where their, um, you know, their competitors are implementing DEI statements and people over profit, but they're, they're not taking the intentional approach of understanding what does this mean to us behaviorally and then acting on those things. So now people are like, I have cognitive dissonance and actually you're, you're making me feel unsafe because your words aren't mas- matching your actions. I'm confused. <laughs> so that's where we're at. And I think people are, are waking up to it, to your point. I couldn't agree more. Again, I need to break through this screen and hug you somewhere somehow. <laughs> and that's the frustrating bit is that, you know, I've been around the sun a few more times than you and I've seen this train wreck many times over it's just now it's hurtling towards 
uh, a closed tunnel and it's it's not pretty and i just feel really sad in many days because i i think about my you know my 19 my 17 and my 16 year olds and i think oh my gosh i love my gen z kids they can annoy me as well angela it's not kid uh, <laughs> let's not be kidding anyone but but i think about what the hell is the workplace going to be like in five years, six years when they're out of college and adulting? Mm. What's that going to feel like? So I'm here to try and find ways in which to permit as many people to bloom as possible. <laughs> That's my mission. And, <laughs> and you know, I, I have those days of sadness too, but I also look at your kids' generation. I'm a millennial, so we're like, you know, we're kind of passing the baton a little yeah. bit. We, d- we did some work and now we're seeing Gen Z just take it. And they're like, we're doing this. We don't know about y'all millennials. You guys, it was a good start. Yeah, thanks. It was a good thanks start. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but we're doing this and we're holding organizations accountable. And if you see the data, the research, you know, Deloitte comes out with a, re- a generational report every year or every few years as yeah. generations start to evolve. And people of our our next generation is absolutely standing in their conviction around this and that makes me proud and and also very excited for what they will demand from organizations so my next question because i love to get to action sure. your book your book is full of action actionable ways to change mindset and think about this work if you're a leader listening to this currently. Maybe you're not convinced, right? Maybe this is like, oh, this sounds like like a little bit of fluff or, you know, I've heard about this before and, you know, I'm going to continue to to lead the way I've been leading because it's worked for me. Mm-hmm. What are some things, or, but they're also open to hearing new things because they're seeing the wave, the next generation come and, and people being very clear about what they need and what they want. What are some ways to, to change mindset and create action around this work around focusing on blooming and thriving from a leadership perspective less on engagement and performance and work-life balance and how the two are connected and and are a full ecosystem i know that was like the longest question ever but hopefully no i I got the gist of it no i loved it actually and it's good context it sets the stage for effectively a very simple answer with some expanded thinking for leaders to contemplate that are listening or watching today. Um, One of the things I've noticed over the last year and a bit to your aforementioned point about Gen Z, or shall I say Gen Z for our American friends being Canadian, I say Z a lot is, um, is Reddit's anti-work discussion forum and TikToks, future of work and work hashtags, essentially, right? And so Gen Z, Gen Z are spending a lot of time hammering out the inanities that are going on in the workplace. TikTok's not as, um, I guess, uh, indefensible because you're you, like you, you're attributed. It's not like you can kind of make up your face and say, oh, I'm not Angela, I'm not Dan. Whereas Reddit, you can hide, you can, well, yeah, right. You can hide behind a pseudonym essentially in Reddit and the anti-work column. Now, what am I bringing this up for? What they're doing is they're creating a space to have a dialogue. Hmm. And 
in lieu of a leader, <laughs> their leader even potentially, having a dialogue with them, they're using Reddit and TikTok. Mm. Now, I am a masochist, so I love it. I love it because <laughs> what you're getting is what I'm advocating for for leaders. Now, instead of the anti-work Reddit discussion forum slash group, and instead of the TikTokers at Gen Z, Gen Z generation, whom are uh, lamenting about mm. their work, and you know, you've seen all the different memes from essentially, uh, you know, manic Mondays to uh, quiet Fridays to yeah, you know, it just goes on. Right? You're like, okay, this is what. Yeah. Why are they doing this? Because they want to have a conversation. They want to have a dialogue with, if not just their direct leader and maybe the next leader, but the organization uh, like writ large. Mm. And that dialogue they want to have is it comes up to like the leader not being empathetic. And so the mm. singular point is, where's your empathy gene? <laughs> your empathy gene of what people go through in work and life. So are you having an open empathetic dialogue about whether they feel that they're trusted to do the right thing do they feel as though that they again belong are they valued and just these kind of work and life factors that i've articulated in the book is all about that it's about the conversation and then when you peel back proverbial layer of the onion and you're not just being perfunctory in said conversation you're actually angela no seriously i'd like to have a conversation not in a flyby but let's spend a little bit of time digging into this Whatever this this issue or this opportunity or this hole or this uh, wonderful um, bouquet suggests, like how do we, if you're feeling with, if you have great agency, how can we make sure we don't lose that, Angela? Mm. If you're feeling deficient in a several skills and you want to become a director in five years time, well, what can I do? First of all, what are your deficiencies? How can I mm -hmm. help you assess those? And how do I help you as your leader carve a path to, to backfill those deficiencies that we both agree at this point in your skill set so that you can become a director in five years time. Hmm. Like the, the goal is not hoarding. The goal, the, the, the goal is not to cut the crop. <laughs> the goal is to uh, new, like fill that garden box up with nutrients to allow that individual to bloom, right? To get, you know, the metaphor. Mm -hmm. So that's what I get at. How and what are you doing to have that open dialogue, to water, uh, to cultivate, to sow, whatever other kind of analogy you want with the garden metaphor here, with your people. And that's mm -hmm. what I think is missing the most. Yes, absolutely. Um, and do you find that, I mean, we talk about empathy, right? I mean, that is a and actually, maybe I'll ask you the question. Do you feel like this is a skill set that leaders are developing over time? Are people born with empathy? It's a nature versus nurture question. <laughs> what do you think? Yes and yes. So there are uh, a rare few, but whatever percentage it is, certainly people are born with it. They're more astute. They have EQ oozing out of their heart. Mm. But what we need to do a better job of, uh, to be honest, Angela, is to teach what actually empathy is. It's not, empathy is not one thing. It's three. Mm. And as you know, right, there's cognitive, uh, emotional, and sympathetic empathy. And cognitive, as I teach people, basically all three, when I'm teaching leaders, I just say, if you can't remember those psychology terms or social scientist terms, remember head, heart, and hands. Head is cognitive empathy. It's 
intellectualizing what people are going through in their head. So whether that is, uh, you know, the taking down of a cognitive dis dissonance or some sort of cognitive bias, or it's understanding where they come from geopolitically, religiously, uh, identity wise, what are they thinking? If you're male and she's a female, what if they're non-binary? Like you have to kind of understand a little bit better with empathy from a cognitive perspective, what people think they're going through and having conversations about what they are thinking they're going through. And then you get to heart and heart is obviously the um, emotional empathy side. And that's what are they feeling? What are they sensing? You know, what's going through the emotions of sadness, anger, joy, and so on. And again, as you know, uh, sympathetic empathy, sometimes called compassion is okay. From a hands perspective, metaphorically, now you've got garden tools in your shed, bring them out. Now you've understood a little bit about the seeds and the soil uh, what are you going to do with your tools, right, to um, sympathize, to take action, to do something about it? So head, heart, hands. Yes, some people are born with that. Most leaders need to be taught it. Hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, the only way you could do all of those things is learning about people as humans, is by listening. And if you are a leader who has built a wall between you and your team or you and the individuals on your team, you're probably not doing any of those three. Oh, and so I think, yeah, I, I think no, I just, I'm jumping in because I, again, I couldn't agree more when leaders believe they've got to put on a Teflon suit so that nothing sticks to them when they believe they've got to come to work wherever the work is, but not share a little bit of their humanity, not the entire kitchen sink of, you know, what's going right and wrong in their lives, but enough to sort of say, I'm human too. When leaders um, cover up a mistake and don't discuss the tuition value of said mistake and say, hey, yeah, that was a doozy. Here's what I learned. Mm -hmm. uh, if they're not being vulnerable when they're a little bit nervous, mm -hmm. you know, all, like it's not to say that they leaders are cowards and need to act cowardly. It's the opposite of that. That's actually bravery. Yes. And so when we're brave as leaders, we're bringing our uh, humanity into conversations. And I loved how you used the word we're listen or we listen because listen is an anagram for silent. <laughs> so we're silent in our listening and not purporting to know it all. As Satya Nadella at Microsoft says, we need to become learn-it-alls, not know-it-alls. So yeah, I'm with you again. This is a great conversation. We're basically I, uh, wickedly agreeing on everything. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. And, um, you know, I do think, I, I think a lot about my own leadership, and I'm sure you do constantly because you're, you're applying these concepts with the leaders you're working with, but also making sure you're role modeling them in that sometimes I forget that as a leader, people are looking to me for permission. Mm -hmm. And when I say permission, what I mean is if I'm human, if I am being vulnerable, if I am saying, hey, I, I effed up, <laughs> I'm, I'm giving in, some, symbolically that permission for my team to do that. If I'm not doing those things, there might be people who I am, who are partnering with me, who I employ, who have had a traumatic experience with a leader. And although I am expressing all of those ideas of empathy and I'm exuding that, they are still hesitant because they are healing from trauma. 
And so I think as leaders, sometimes we say, oh, you know, well, I was in the room and I asked for feedback and nobody spoke up. I'm just going to just going to move on. It's like you have to remember people's baggage a little bit. And yes. you you are a persona, even though you're being really kind and nice and open, you're still a persona of a leader. And if that persona of, the, of, a, of, a, of a leader in that person's mind equates to, OK, I can't be real. I can't be honest because I'm going to get my hand slapped for that. It doesn't matter. So you also have to be in a place of healing, too, I think, as a leader. The fear factor is real. When people believe because they've seen it through some sort of learned helplessness in the organization, that people are reprimanded for a mistake, an idea, uh, and fill in the blank other examples, right? Then you've created that learned helplessness culture. And people are like, oh, I'm just going to have to sit on my hands now because I don't want to get whacked or I don't want to get penalized or ostracized from my peers. Because I have been called out and like, oh, Dan, you said that <laughs> you're going to get grilled in an email from the boss. It's coming. Wait till Friday. That's when he or she does it. That's when those things come up. What are you doing? You've been here six weeks. Don't you know by now? Like, Dan. <laughs> and all of a sudden now, Dan, after the six week email comes out on that Friday, is no longer a contributing team member. Is just collecting a paycheck. It's like, yep. fine, I'll just mail it in. And I'll just suck it up. And mm -hmm. back to your point about Gen Z and then Reddit and TikTokers, that's kind of where we're slowly, I think, getting into a bit of a demarcation point and where you have uh, millennials and Xers and certainly boomers wondering, WTF? Like there's a culture war happening. Mm -hmm. And I think that you and I are translators. Yes for the many millennial and Gen X leaders that are out there and the work that you and I do to say, because we're a bit perhaps prophetic and knowing what's about to come as well as the masses grow and, and Gen Z is like, uh-uh. Well, yes, they need a paycheck, but it's going to be very difficult for good innovation, et cetera, to come if we've got a whole cohort of people whom are in angst <laughs> every time. Like, angry like this is not your father's mother's company we want it different so yeah. we got to translate that's our job you and i yeah no i i i feel you on that and that's 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 how i feel pretty much daily is you know we're kind of this bridge in a way to um the the the, the dying and the birthing of the future of work or the future of work is here. That's the other thing I, I always mention to people is oh my God. here. Well, first we of all, arrived. like I, I think you and I have to adopt like a new last name together. Like I'm trying to be the opposite of my last name. And you're right. We're trying to build a bridge. Yeah. And then secondly, uh, the sort of sub tagline I use a lot in my work is the future of work is now. Stop, yes. stop talking about the future of work. Like, no, we're not talking about spaceships and AI. It's mm -hmm. here that we have spaceships and AI and work is happening in the future today. So get over this whole future work stuff. It's actually right now. Absolutely. And I think, Dan, that's a beautiful bow to tie, I think, on this conversation, even though there are like nine other conversations I've pegged <laughs> in my head as we have to have. Um, I would love to talk more about the return from, you know, return to work, return to office, that whole conversation. But We'll save that for another episode at some point. I love it. I can't wait to come back, Angela. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes. You are an all-star, well-read, yes. well-spoken, and certainly well-versed in the future of work is now. 
Oh, you're amazing, Dan. And let everybody know where to find you. So if they're, you know, I, you're really redefining this concept of leadership. So people want more from you. Where do they find you? And then tell us more about the book. Uh, probably my name is the easiest, danpontefract.com, except I don't have a very easy name. So D-A-N-P-O-N-T-E-F-R-A-C-T.com. Or what could be easier, get to the same spot, worklifebloom.com. And the book is, again, the uh, it's, it's a synthesis of three years of people's thoughts and ideas and yearnings on the factors that are going to help them to bloom. But at the same time, in the research and the interviews that I did, just when I turned the, by the way, the camera on myself, I realized that I have been equal parts blooming, budding, stunted, and in renewal. And that's totally okay. I have learned a lot by going through the cycles of the different personas. And that's the revelation that I got to, uh, for many people on this planet. We can't always be engaged, and we certainly can't always be blooming. We gotta find ways in which to try and sustain that as often as we can. Wonderful. Well, I, for one, am excited to uh, read the entire book once it's out and I have it in my hands. Uh, we'll, we'll be sure to uh, include all the links in our show notes so folks can, can track the, the launch of the book and get pre-orders in. Um, and Dan, thank you so much for your time, your perspective. It was magic. So thank you so much. Keep being you, Angela. We need more Angelas in this world. Thank <laughs> you so much. <laughs> <laughs>